0: Ephesians 5, 1 to 21. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But... Fornication, and all uncleanness, or covetousness, let it not be once named among you, as becometh saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord walk as children of light, redeeming the time because the days are evil. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all righteousness and goodness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore, he saith, awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Father, we ask your blessing on this service today. Lord, I ask that you would give me the words that you would have me to speak. I ask that you would speak into the hearts of each person here today, not least of which myself. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word, that you have given us access to your throne room, that you have given us more gifts than we could count. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 5.1 says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. Paul begins his exhortation with this encouraging and hope-filled affirmation of our identity in Christ as dear children. Tecna agapeta, literally children who are the recipients of God's perfect agape love. This title that Paul gives to each one of us as believers is very intentionally used as the foundation for Paul's exhortation. In a sense, these two words are a reassertion of the previous four chapters. while Paul is opening with our standing as being dearly beloved children of God, he is also highlighting quickly and reminding us of the means by which we have become the children of God. And not only God's children, but dearly beloved children of God. Paul is asserting that our very identity is wrapped up in the reality that we have received agape love from the Father, Son, and Spirit. We have been given the gift of God's love. You and I have been adopted into God's family. Ephesians 5.2 carries on, And walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering, and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. The means by which every child of God has entered into the family of God is through Christ's gift alone. Through his love, through his sacrifice, Before Paul begins warning and exhorting us not to walk in sin, he first establishes that Christ's willing submission to the Father in offering Himself as the ransom for many, this is the picture of the intimate love that we are called to replicate, to imitate, to mirror in this world. But it's impossible. When I look at myself honestly, I have to admit that I can't get close to that. I'm utterly incapable of even a fraction of the love that Christ demonstrates. Genuine love is completely unattainable in my own strength. However, Paul does not simply give a command that's unattainable But Paul is also seeking to point us to how we are empowered to love to the same degree as Christ loves. It is only by means of the sacrifice of Christ. It is only because of the gift of the Holy Spirit that I am able to be made to share in God's loving nature. Like the way Peter puts it, partakers in the divine nature in 2 Peter chapter 1. Ephesians 5, 3 to 4. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you, as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. So before I address the meat of the exhortation, I believe it is utterly important to highlight the conclusion of Paul's statement. This list of sins that believers should not commit is not followed by an equally long list of virtues that must be exercised in order to be set free. But rather, he gives one single command Give thanks. The heartfelt giving of thanks can only possibly come not only after a gift has been received, or given, but also after it has been received. When we give thanks, we are acknowledging God's gift, accepting God's gift, and looking at God's gift for what it is. In this command to give thanks, we are reminded of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. For it is by grace ye have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. If I read Ephesians 5 verses 3 and 4 and grasp the weightiness of Paul's exhortation, but I fail to understand the absolute necessity of Christ's gift, I've missed the point entirely. If I only understand the exhortation, I will be led into the same deadly condemnation that I have been trapped in before of trying to prove my worth to God, trying to earn his love and favor. I never can and I never will. As Paul calls the saved to this high standard of behavior, both in chapter 2 and chapter 5, he only does it after firmly planting the foundation in the context of understanding our own insufficiency and Christ's utter sufficiency. Our efforts cannot save us. Only Christ's work can do that. I'm not afraid of re-emphasizing this too many times This point is the essence of the gospel. The gospel is this truth. I am utterly unable to achieve the standard that God has set. Not only does striving to achieve that standard ultimately result in failure, but even the striving itself is a sin of arrogance and foolish pride, thinking that I could reach the righteousness of God. There is only one way that I can please God, and that is to humbly receive the gift that he has given, the gift of his grace, of his forgiveness, of his help. So if everyone here misses the exhortation, I'm all right with that as long as you understand what Paul is reminding, of us, reminding us of. We are saved apart from our efforts to keep the law. You and I are saved by the excellency of Christ. We are saved by his goodness, by the riches of his grace. You and I are able to be saved solely because Christ has the authority to save us. He has the authority to give us the gift of salvation. But with this context in mind, let us together seek the Lord's heart in Paul's exhortation to us. Ephesians 5.3 Fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Fornication is often translated as sexual immorality, but it goes far deeper than merely sexual sin. It was easy for me, after I had set, set to rest the outward acts of sexual immorality, to pat myself on the back, all the while completely missing that my self-sufficiency, my doubt of God, was equally defined as fornication. Fornication is predominantly used to speak of sexual sin. However, the core issue beneath the surface from which these acts arise goes much deeper and reaches to every one of us. The core issue is not one of sexual immorality. In fact, the first, one of the first accounts that is biblically defined as fornication was not sexual in nature at all. Hebrews 12:14 to 16 warns us to follow peace with all men, but with holiness. It calls us to watch diligently, lest any one of us fall because of bitterness. And verse 16 carries on saying... Lest there be any fornicator or profane person among you as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. The original account from Genesis chapter 25 states in verse 32 that Esau said, I'm at the point of death. <laughs> good will this birthright do me? Esau esteemed that his birthright was worthless because he esteemed that God was either unable or unwilling to fulfill his promise, to sustain his life, to give him that gift. Esau believed that God had not provided every gift he needed. And because of this, Esau decided that he must grab for himself what he needed to maintain his life. As important as it is to remain sexually pure, this issue of fornication extends so much deeper. When we doubt the sufficiency of God, when we seek to grab hold of what we think we need, This, too, is fornication. In the past, when I've felt that I was missing out on something that I needed, something that I couldn't go without, that God hadn't given me, I would start to consume my thoughts. And just like Esau, with enough time of imagining that I was cut free from what I needed, my estimation said, yeah, it's worth it. It's worth more than my inheritance. I'll take it. Because God isn't going to give it. It's the same core issue from the very beginning. When Adam and Eve believed the lie that God was holding out on them, there was something more that they needed to grab for themselves. Ephesians 5.3 But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you, as becometh saints. The Greek word for uncleanness, akatharsias, is a compound word that means not pure, and the fundamental meaning of purity is unmixed. We see here that Paul may be highlighting that genuine righteous works might belong to these believers he's speaking to. You and I might have genuine righteous works, but if they are mixed with the unrighteous works of this world, we're still unclean, we are impure. The same concept of being mixed is expressed by Christ in his condemnation of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23 verse 27. Using the same word for uncleanness, akatharsias, Christ said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, for ye are like unto whited tombs which do appear beautiful outward, but inwardly are full of all dead men's bones and all akatharsias uncleanness. The Pharisees did have a form of godliness; they followed the rules to a T. But they were resting on their own ability. They believed that their own works could gain them the righteousness that God demands. While they may have had works that were genuinely good, such as giving to the poor, refraining from impure pleasures, it was poisoned by that fornication, that belief that they needed to seize for themselves the righteousness that God either could not or would not grant to sinners. Romans 10, verses 1 to 4. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. If the Pharisees had believed that God was truly righteous, completely pure, fully holy, and if they had honestly examined their hearts they doubtless would have seen they could never be as pure as God, as holy, unmixed, and righteous as Jehovah. They studied the scriptures fervently. Nevertheless, they were blind to the weight of the commands of God. In the Torah, God called the Israelites to be as holy, as pure, as unmixed and undefiled as the Lord Jehovah himself. Leviticus 20, verses 7 and 8. By the mouth of Moses, the Lord declares, Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be ye holy. For I am the Lord your God, and ye shall keep my statutes and do them. For I am the Lord which sanctifieth you. The same Hebrew word for holiness, kadosh, is used repeatedly in this section. Holy yourselves, kadishtam. Be ye holy, kadoshim. For I am the Lord who makes you holy. Jehovah mekadishim. Although God commands you and I to make ourselves holy, both in the Old Testament and the New, he does so in the context of asserting that it is only possible because he is the Lord who makes us holy. It is purely and solely because the Lord sanctified the Israelites that they were empowered to sanctify themselves it is purely and solely because God has freed me and cleansed me of my past sins that I am able to walk pure and holy before him today. Just as in the Old Testament sacrifices were necessary to make the people of Israel holy for you and I today the sacrifice of Christ is the only way that we may be cleansed from our iniquity. It is the only way that we are empowered to walk pure and holy before him. It was only the death of Christ that was able to pay my debt and absorb the wrath that I know I deserve. Ephesians 5.3 But fornication, and all uncleanness, or covetousness, let it not be once named among you, as becometh saints. Covetousness means always needing to have more. You ever found a place where you uh, didn't think you needed more? in my personal experience this desire for more does not have to be negative it can go two directions on the one hand i can desire more of this world of its securities and comforts its pleasures power influence whatever i think is going to satisfy me and it never does never can never will or I can desire more of God. On the side of the earthly things, I'll never find satisfaction. My desire will never be fulfilled. But when I desire more of God, I trust his promise in Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to him must believe that he really exists and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The desire for more of God will be satisfied. Unlike any desire for earthly comforts. Paul encourages us in Ephesians three sixteen to 21 that his prayer for us that God would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Jesus really does fill the abundance that we desire. All the abundant fullness of God himself overflows within us. This passage has encouraged me so exceedingly. Not only do I get to know a love that is beyond understanding, but I also get to be filled with every last bit of God. The one who cannot be contained even in the heaven of heavens has put the fullness of himself within me. as though Paul knows that sounds too good to be true. He concludes, God is able to do exceeding abundantly above anything you and I would ever ask or even imagine to ask. He does it through the power that is already working in us. If you're doubting that God can deliver you from whatever you're struggling with, look at the power that is already working in you. Look at what God has already done. If he accomplished that, is this next hurdle too big for God? I look back at years of drug addiction. I could not free myself no matter how much I wanted to. And even after I got saved, it was a struggle for quite a while there. No amount of desire to be free could have saved me. It was the work of God that saved me. And I have to remind myself of that often when there seems to be an insurmountable hurdle in front of me. If God could free me in that, he'll deal with this next thing too. Ephesians 5, 3 to 4 but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you, as becometh saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. Ecclesiastes ten one speaks of how a fly that lands in perfume will make that perfume smell of death the preacher in ecclesiastes go on goes on to say it's the same when someone who is honorable and known for wisdom has even a little bit of foolishness mixed in we're not shocked when a fool behaves in a foolish manner But it is a grotesque thing to see someone who we know to be righteous, we know to be wise, act with even a little foolishness. This is why Paul says that it should not be this way among believers. Saints are those who are made holy by God. believe that is why when we see wickedness in the world, it doesn't hurt our spirit as much as when we see even small sins in fellow believers. I know for myself, when I look back at even the most grotesque sins from before I was saved, although my heart is grieved by them, my heart is more grieved even looking and seeing unkind words that I've spoken after being saved. In these verses, Paul especially is highlighting the little sins that we easily dismiss. He speaks of the sins of the heart first, fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness. But then, he goes on to the sins of the words. Filthiness, foolish talking, jesting. As Christ says to the outwardly righteous Pharisees in Matthew twelve thirty four, "O generation of vipers, how can you speak what is good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Our words are a mirror that reflects either the impurity or the purity of our hearts. but do not be discouraged. Paul is not undermining the salvation of the saints he is addressing. In asserting that such sin ought never to be among us, he is not saying that if you're wrestling with these sins, you're not a saint, but rather he is reminding us of his point in chapter four. We have a high calling in Christ. We are called to the same maturity That Christ demonstrated. In Ephesians 4 7 we're told that the gift of Christ matches the magnitude of the fullness of Christ. And in verse 13 and verse 12 and 13 we're told that God gave us ministers of the gospel for the purpose of perfecting the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying and building up of the body of Christ, until all of us come into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, until all of us come to the maturity of the full stature of Christ. The gift of grace which matches the fullness of Christ is given so that the body can come into the maturity that matches the fullness of Christ. The gift of grace that matches the fullness of Christ is given so that the body can come into the same maturity that matches the fullness of Christ. When Paul speaks of the high calling for believers, he is not undermining their salvation, but rather is reminding them that they have been offered a gift, the gift of freedom. They are called into maturity by the gift of Christ, which matches the fullness of Christ. Paul in Ephesians 4.12 says, until we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. He acknowledges that there is not yet full unity, but he doesn't put it off in a distant future after we're all dead. He points to the reality that Christ can bring that unity, his spirit working in us, And his spirit working through his ministers is working to bring that unity these truths expressed in chapter 4 are of paramount importance in understanding the call of chapter 5. each and every believer is called to walk perfectly fully mature in full unity with fellow believers and with christ himself but this only will ever be accomplished by the gift of Christ, his grace. In light of this, it becomes more clear that Paul is not questioning the salvation of believers who are overtaken by fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness, filthiness, foolish talking, and jesting, but rather he is reminding us of the means to be set free. Because God has given the gifts necessary for us to become mature and free in Christ, he has given us the gift of his grace, of his spirit of promise. And this is why Paul's only command of action in this list is, instead of these things, give thanks. The only gift we can give, God, Is our thanks. We have nothing of value to offer to God. He's the one who rebuilds us and makes us into something worthwhile. Without that, my life is nothing of worth to him. It is his work that makes me worthwhile. So what can I give him? Only thanks. Giving of thanks is the key to the freedom from sin. Giving of thanks is the key to freedom from fornication, thinking we have to seize for ourselves those things that God has withheld. Giving thanks is the key to freedom from uncleanness, being mixed between the righteousness that God offers and the filth that comes along when we seize our needs for ourselves. Giving thanks is the key to freedom from covetousness, that unending desire for more, that perpetual state of being unsatisfied, unthankful. All of these things find their answer in giving thanks to God. When I thank God, I am choosing to acknowledge His grace alone is more than all that I need. I don't need to grab anything for myself. When I thank God, I acknowledge that He really has the authority and power to make me righteous. When He said He made me clean, He really did. When I thank God, I'm unable to do anything but behold the excellency of His gift. And that is the perfect cure to any dissatisfaction. While in prison, Paul demonstrated this same thankfulness he is calling you and me to do. In Philippians four eleven to thirteen it says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know both how to be made low and to abound. I know both how to be full and to be hungry. In fact, I can do all these things because Christ strengthens me. Regardless of whatever trials and pains each one of you are facing today, regardless of the battles that you may feel you are losing or already lost. Psalm 119.64 says that this whole world is just overflowing with God's mercy. I pray that God would open our eyes to see it, that as we behold his grace on display, each one of us would open our mouths in an offering of thanks.